This morning we are continuing our new series on the family. And that means that we are dealing topically with certain aspects of the family. Two weeks ago we looked at the family of God as the model for earthly families. This week we are going to look at marriage, the foundation of the family that God himself established in the garden. And so we're going to be looking at two texts this morning, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. We'll look at Genesis chapter 2 as well as Ephesians chapter 5. So if you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, that is where we will begin. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord, yes, in our day, is completely authoritative. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And now turning to the New Testament, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we come to chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. 
And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask you this morning that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word. That you would give us understanding. That we would know who you are and what you require of us. That you would give us the blessing to be a testimony before a watching world of your saving work. This we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. What is marriage? Why is marriage important? These questions are more important now than ever. Who would have thought that we would come to a place and time in which we would have to explain marriage? The basic foundational principle of the family the basic relationship of all of society and culture. And yet here we are in America in 2023, in a place and time in which people are very confused about husbands, about wives, about marriage, about the purpose of marriage, about the blessing of marriage, about even the need for marriage. But the good news is that the Bible has the answer to our questions. The Bible has always had the answer to our questions. That's why God has given it to us, to lead us and to teach us about the basic principles of life. And so this morning, we're going to delve into what the Lord our God has to say about marriage. Marriage is the foundation of the family. We can't understand the family and the roles of fathers and mothers and children without thinking first of marriage. And so from the text in Genesis and in Ephesians 5, I'd like us to see three things this morning. First, in Genesis we have described for us the need for marriage. That marriage is something we need. Second, we see the design of marriage, that God himself is the designer of marriage. And then third, in a very practical way, Paul tells us how we should live in marriage. The need for marriage, the design of marriage, and living in marriage. Let's begin then by looking at the need for marriage in the creation account. As we come to this text in Genesis 2, you have to remember what's going on in creation. Remember the purpose of man that has been set forth in the previous chapter in Genesis 1. It's laid out that God has said in verse 28 of chapter 1, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God has commissioned man, if you will, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. And in doing so, to have dominion over creation, over the creatures and over creation, as his vice regent, if you will. It's not as if God is giving up his authority, 
but he is empowering Adam to have dominion over creation. Adam is the pinnacle of creation. But there's something interesting that happens here at the beginning of verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Now this is shocking to your ears if you're paying attention, because over and over again in the creation account, day by day, we hear a similar refrain. It was morning, it was evening, and it was very good. It was good. It was good. And now here God says something different. He says it's not good. Now, you have to understand, Adam is living in a perfect environment. He's living in a perfect state. There is no sin. There are no storms. There's no death. There's no pain. And at least I like to think there are no mosquitoes biting and sucking blood off of us. It is the perfect place to be. And yet God says it's not good. And what this shows to us is not that God has failed, not that he's left something lacking. Don't picture God slapping his forehead and going, oh, I forgot. There's this one other thing. God is highlighting for us how important companionship is. His creation is not finished with Adam. Until Eve is brought into the picture, God is not done creating. There is a need that Adam has, and Eve will fit that need perfectly created and tailored by God. You see, the idea of us being separate and living in solitude is not a biblical one. One of the great advancements of the Reformation was a movement away from the monastic order, from people thinking that it was holier and better to live by themselves in silence, apart from others and apart from society. And the Reformation brought back the truth of Genesis 2 that we were made to live in relationship. We were made to live with others. Have you ever wondered why the worst punishment they can give you in jail is to put you in solitary? You see, we were made by God to relate to one another. And especially in the closest relationship of husband and wife. And so Adam was not meant to be alone. He was not meant to work by himself, God had given him the task of working and keeping the garden. But now he tells us, this is not good. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, when we hear the word helper, I think sometimes we think of a kind of second-class citizen. As if a partner in a company needs an administrative assistant. Or as if a leader in a government needs a chief of staff. But that's not the word that is used here in Genesis 2. The helper is fit for Adam. The helper is to correspond to Adam, to be equal with Adam. The helper that God envisions is one of dignity. And this word helper, interestingly enough, is many times used in the Bible to describe God. Now, we wouldn't consider God a second-class citizen, a junior partner, you think of that famous psalm, Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And in that psalm, the word help is the exact same word that is used here in Genesis 2. It's used to describe 
God. One who helps, one who assists, one who cooperates. And so God is demonstrating to Adam his need. That his primary need is for companionship. We are sometimes, I think, confused about the purpose of marriage. Some people think that the main purpose of marriage is procreation, having children. And of course, that is a purpose and a good purpose of marriage. But it's not the only purpose of marriage. It's not even, I would say, the primary purpose of marriage because children flow out of the relationship between a husband and a wife. Others think that the purpose of marriage is self-satisfaction. I need to find someone to marry who will make me feel good about myself, who will meet my needs, who will help me, who will put me first. But that's not why marriage is desirable either. God says that marriage is desirable because we were not meant to be alone. We were meant to be together, to work hand in hand, heart to heart, husband and wife. And we see this even by the scene that unfolds in front of us. Moses tell, tells us, excuse me, that the beasts of the earth come and Adam gives each one of them a name and what he named them, that was what they were called in verse 19. And so you can imagine the scene. They come up to Adam and Adam says, dog, elephant, lion, Tiger, bear, oh my, all of these animals. And so you can imagine Adam is seeing the animals come and they come two by two and he names them. And we think this is easy because we know all of these names already, but Adam is using all of the creativity that God has given him. Adam is brilliant. No philosopher has any advantage on Adam. No educationalist has any advantage on Adam. He is literally naming all of the creatures of the world. But the more and more that they come, the more he becomes aware. He says, there's two dogs. There's two lions. Two elephants. Where's the other me? I'm the only one. What's missing here? I'm all alone. All of the animals have mates, but I don't. And you see, God demonstrates to Adam that he needs a mate, a helper, a wife. <clears throat> now this is very important for us. Because you see, Modern society is doing all it can to make you numb to the need of marriage. It is portraying the principle of the self-sufficient woman who doesn't need marriage, doesn't need children, doesn't need a husband. All she needs is a glass of wine, a Netflix subscription, and a frozen dinner. And she's got supposedly all she needs she doesn't need children or a husband or relationships. And they want to make women into pseudo-men. They just work and they live by themselves and they don't have relationships. But society also is trying to convince men that they don't need marriage. There's a whole new creature of modern society. I call it the boy man. It's the man who sits on a couch and watches television, and plays video games. 
and can't even be bothered now, post-COVID, to go out and get fast food. He orders it to come to him. You see, he doesn't have any need to make something of himself, to provide for a wife, to provide for a family. He just looks to himself. Do you know that the average age of video game purchasers is in the mid-30s? Now, when I was younger, I would have thought 16, 18. And now, I'm not saying here that none of you can ever turn on a computer and play a game. Don't hear me saying that, because then I'd be in trouble, because I even occasionally delve into that. But that doesn't describe your existence. That's not your purpose. I'm not telling women that they shouldn't be sufficient, that they shouldn't be energetic, that they shouldn't be ingenious. But you don't try to separate yourself off from society. We have a need for marriage. And because we have a need for marriage, God provides, God designs marriage. Now, it's interesting. Do you see what God does not do here? He doesn't say, you're right, Adam. You need a companion. Head off and go find one. He also doesn't say, now describe for me, Adam, your perfect mate. And I'll take a survey of one and write down everything you need and make to order. No, what God does is he shows us that he's completely in charge. He puts Adam into a deep sleep and takes a bone from Adam and fashions it into Eve. Now, we look at this, and I think our tendency is to say, well, of course he had to put Adam to sleep. They didn't have anesthesia back then. And you know how painful it would be to do what God is described as doing? Now, I have to tell you, this is a world before sin, before death, and I think even before pain. I don't think God is putting anesthesia on Adam. I think what God is doing is deliberately putting Adam to sleep so that he cannot raise any merit of his own with respect to the choice of Eve. You know, Adam's children come to him and they say, now, how did you find mom? How did you meet mom? You know, we, we all have that story. You know, married couples, you always get that. Where did you meet? Some of us have known each other since grade school. Others of us met in college. Others of us met later in life. And you have a story. Adam's story is going to be, I have absolutely no idea. God put me to sleep, and I woke up, and there she was. God did everything. Now, I want to tell you this. You may have a story about how you met your wife or your husband, but it is no less a work of God than Adam and Eve. God in his providence is in complete control of your life. He is the one who brings to you your spouse. And so you can look at your spouse, you're even able to do it now, and say, God has given you to me. Because God doesn't stop being at work after the garden. And so Adam, in this sleep, God brings Eve out. And it's interesting how Moses describes this. In verse 22, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And this word is a very interesting word. It's an architectural term. It means to build something. It's often used in the Bible to describe building of cities or building of walls or building of palaces. And so God is the master craftsman. 
He has brought Eve into a perfect, sinless world exactly as she should be. And Moses tells us that God brings her to Adam. The closest analogy we have today is at a wedding where the father of the bride walks her down the aisle. And it's interesting, whenever I do a wedding, I don't do what you do at a wedding. At a wedding, when the bride comes in, everyone stands up and everyone looks at the bride. I don't. I look at the husband and I look at the father. And I see the emotion on their faces. And the father brings the bride down and the question, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And he says, I do. That's what God is doing here. He's establishing marriage. And the woman's value to Adam is of herself. She is for man, from man, given to man. It is true fellowship. There's no mention yet of childbearing or of children. A woman is not a means to an end. She's not a conduit to a children or family. She has a value in and of herself. And Adam would understand this. On some level, he could have fellowship with a dog. Maybe some of you do, or fellowship with a cat, or some other animal. But it's not the kind of fellowship that he could have with his wife. That's completely different. God designed marriage for that kind of fellowship. And God has established a kind of oneness. Do you notice the interesting thing that we see in verse 19? Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And you may recall that Adam was formed from the dust of the earth. Do you know that Eve is the only part of creation not formed from the earth? She's formed from Adam. So there is a connection here that can never be broken, can never be severed. There is a oneness. God has brought the solution... To Adam's problem. This is the pattern in creation. He's given Eve to Adam to provide mutual service and obedience to God to be the first family. Now Adam responds to what God has done in verse 23. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now in some of your Bibles, the translation may be set off in versification. Because it, it actually is a poetic statement that Adam makes. It's the first poetry, really, in the Bible. But the translation loses a little bit of the sense of what Adam is doing. This at last is bone of my bone, sounds good. But what really Adam says at the beginning is he makes this profound theological statement when Eve is brought to him. He says, wow, wow. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The undertext here is, God, you've outdone yourself. I can't believe it. I'm stunned. Here I was just wanting a companion, and look what you have given to me. Adam is clearly recognizing the value of marriage. So, we need marriage. God has designed marriage. But I think we need a bit of a refresher course in how to live in this marriage that God has created. And the Apostle Paul takes the text that we've looked at in Genesis 2 
and he begins to teach us about the duties of husbands and wives in marriage. Because you see, marriage today is not what it is supposed to be. For many of us today, marriage is an afterthought. In our society, people don't think first of marriage. You know, I'm old enough to remember when at least most people thought the order was you get married, you live together, and you have a child. That is no longer anywhere near the order. It's more like a random number generator. Some people have children first. Some people live together first. And oftentimes they don't see marriage as being even an essential part of living together or having children together. But marriage was, was designed by God to be the foundation of the family. And I do understand that in our sin-cursed world, marriage is a place of conflict. Husbands and wives quarrel or have difficulties or challenges. That's, that's part of life because we're sinners. I often tell the groom and the bride at a wedding that marriage gives them an opportunity to practice forgiveness. Lots of practice of forgiveness because we sin against each other. Marriages can even end. And then there is brokenness. There's brokenness in relationships. There's brokenness in people's stature. There's brokenness with children. But Christian marriages should be different. Now, it's not that marriage is only for Christians. Marriage is a creation ordinance. We described it in Genesis 2, in creation. So marriage is for everyone on earth. But Christians should show the world what marriage was designed to look like. And that's what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians 5. And he starts by giving a directive to wives. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now this word submit has as its root the idea of order. It's almost a military word to put yourself in order. And what that tells us is the Lord has chosen in his wisdom to order the family in this way. The order is God's order. He sets the parameters. This is not because of any essential difference or inferiority between men and women. What it means is wives are to trust their husbands. They're to follow their husbands. And not in a quid pro quo kind of way. What do I mean by that? It's not appropriate for wives to say, well, honey, if you love me well, and you remember my birthday, and you do this and you do that, then I'll submit. No, there's no prerequisite there. But submitting also doesn't apply, imply inequality. Men and women are both equal before God. Paul will say exactly that in Galatians chapter 3. He will say, in Christ there is neither male nor female. Now, Paul is not saying that in glory we're going to carry around signs on ourselves with our pronouns because we don't know whether we're male or female. What Paul is saying here is, before God himself, there is equality, male and female. It actually picks up what Moses says about the creation in Genesis 1. It says, he created man, male and female, he created them. They're created equally. 
It also doesn't apply in ability. Paul doesn't say wives need to submit because you know you're not very handy. You know you're not very intelligent. You know you're not very patient. There's no inability implied there. But yet it is a command that is not to be ignored. Our culture wants you to ignore that. God is telling you that men and women are not identical. That shouldn't be a controversial statement, but it is in 2023. God created male and female, and he did it for a reason. Men and women are to complement each other. One of the great tragedies of our modern age is to break down this distinction between men and women. Because our society seems to be of the impression that the only way two people can be equal is if they are exactly the same. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Our society is constantly trying to make men more effeminate and women more masculine to try to make some kind of androgynous being. That's not how we were created. We were created equal in worth, but we were not created the same. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord? Well, he doesn't mean that it is to be generalized. He's not saying, now women... Anytime any man asks you to do something, you must do it. That's not what he's saying. The language here is actually really clear. Their own husbands. And the word for their own is a very unique Greek word. We get our word idiosyncratic from it. If you talk about someone's idiosyncrasies, it's things that are very peculiar to them. You know, they, they eat their food one type of food at a time, not all together. They, they sit a certain way in the car. They walk a certain way. And that's the word that's used here. To their own, their own idiosyncratic, their own and their only their own husbands. That's what this applies to. That's important because this command comes not from the essence of woman, but from the relationship that the woman has to the man. That's where God has given the command. You see, Paul's teaching here in Ephesians is actually the opposite of what the world believed at that time. At that time, women were deemed to be just about the same as property. They were not really considered people. They didn't have rights. Children, actually, in many senses, were more valuable than women because they could carry on a man's name, because they could uh, help him in his old age. What Paul is saying here is that women have value. And because they have value, they're a part of a team in marriage. And they have to be committed to that team. And the husband is the leader of that team. Now, I'm not here to tell you that that's going to be easy. You know, you don't know how hard it's going to be until you have to do it. Because the fall has distorted all of our relationships. Sin makes all of us selfish. And we naturally don't think of others. Sin makes us doubt the wisdom of God. And so the natural reaction of women to this command is, who are you to tell me? And the natural reaction of a man to this passage in his natural self is, honey, get me a sandwich. But God's not saying either of those things. He's ordering the family and telling us how it is to exist. 
And this is not a cultural matter. This is not something so often people will come in our day and age to a passage like this and say, well, of course Paul would say that. Those were the olden days, before iPhones and the Internet and electric cars. Now we know better. So we don't need this fuddy-duddy Bible stuff anymore. No, this is a creation ordinance, a creation mandate. It is to describe how marriage was to be from Adam to the wedding that occurred last Saturday. That's how it is. Now, this doesn't give Eve any less value if she is to submit to Adam, because after all, remember, Eve is the solution to the only not good during the week of creation. She has great value. But Adam and man after him are created to be the head. Paul tells us this, that husbands are heads of their wives. Now, what does this mean? This Greek word means that the husbands have authority. And Paul clarifies us for what this means by describing the headship of Christ over the church. God has designed the family to be led by the husband. Now, we hate to see that in our day and age. You know, I have to tell you, when I do a wedding, one of the things that happens in a wedding is the wedding vows. And uh, I'm a bit of a stickler. I'm a bit of a traditionalist. I tell the couple, I don't do write your own vows. If you want to say to the bride, you are the wind beneath my wings. If you want to say to your husband, you are the hot sauce on my taco. Feel free to say that in the privacy of your own home. And that could be a great term of endearment. But we're going to use vows that talk about biblical principles. And one of the areas which can often be kind of odd is when the vow comes up to the woman to love, honor, and obey. And they say, well, I don't want to do that. And my first response is, wait a minute. That's how the Bible describes it. And if the bride-to-be says, well, you don't know him, I'm going to say, well, wait a minute, then maybe you shouldn't be marrying him. If you don't trust him, if you don't trust him to protect you and to care for you and to provide for you and to love you, you probably shouldn't be getting married. Let's have some more counseling. Think about how the family is founded. And so if we think about the relationship between Christ and the church, that gives us more of an illustration. The church gives instructions to wives. This is not a random relationship between a husband and a wife. It's not a relationship where wives are taken advantage of. The relationship is one of love, growth, and respect. Jesus doesn't take advantage of the church. He loves the church, and he wants the best for the church. So Paul's words here are a reminder that marriage is not just how it is. Marriage is how God has intended it for our good. Now, what about husbands? Well, in our modern society, we get hung up about ideas of marriage. We think to submit is a horrible word. But Paul's word to husbands takes on a different character. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, we think that love is easy. That if we're really doing a good job of love, we have to remember anniversaries and birthdays and buy flowers. But other than that, it's a pretty piece of cake. But that's not the reality. We act as if there's nothing to love. But what Paul tells us is the husband's duty to love is not in accordance with the modern notion. 
So just as we were given direction for submission, Paul gives us direction for love. And he tells us that we are to love husbands as Christ loved the church. What that means is love is by definition self-sacrifice. It means putting another before myself. And this provides context for the previous command to wives. Because how can I lord it over someone that I'm called to sacrifice for? Husbands are to sacrifice for their wives. I would dare to say, in my sanctified imagination, that if God had come to Adam in the garden and said, Look, i got two jobs here. You can submit, or you can love sacrificially the way Christ loved the church. Adam would have picked submit. And smart men would too. Because this is a very, very tall order. We're given the explicit example of what this sacrifice looks like. Because the fullness of Christ's love was seen in his dying for the church. Jesus didn't spare anything to show his love. And so this is the real challenge for husbands today because our society does not value this. Our society views marriage, if at all, as a power dynamic struggle to see who has the upper hand and who can get what they want most often. But to love like Christ loved means you must give yourself up. You must sacrifice for the benefit of your wife. It means that the blessing of your wife is more important than your happiness. That runs directly contrary to modern notions of marriage, which say, I'll get married because it makes me happy, and when I'm not happy any longer, I'll stop the marriage. Let me say something bluntly. Do you think Jesus was happy bearing the wrath of God? Do you think Jesus was happy being crucified? Certainly not personally, yet he did it. He sacrificed himself because he knew that was the only way to bring blessing and benefit to his bride, the church. And so it means dying daily to self. Now this is important because I think husbands who say they will sacrifice themselves for their wives often have in mind grand gestures. You know. If a burglar comes to the house and kicks in the front door and starts shooting, I will dive in front of the bullet for my wife. Okay. You know, if a tornado comes and we're all being drowned, I will lift my wife above the water and drown for her. Okay. How often do you expect that to happen? How about we start with you help with the laundry? And you help save resources for the needs of the family. And you encourage your wife. And you pray for your wife. How about you do the day-by-day things? (coughs) Every day that you are called to do. You see, God's purpose is for husbands to love their wives In this way, husbands have been given authority to serve their wives' interests. Just as Jesus is making the church holy and perfect. 
And he's doing that on a daily basis. And it's not finished yet. Paul tells us that he is sanctifying the church. He is cleansing the church by the water of the word. So the husband's goal in marriage is not himself, but her. Our failure to see this is why we buck the concept of submission. Jesus loves the church, and he is going to present her perfect as his bride. So husbands should have as their main priority the full spiritual potential of their wives. Now Paul wants us not to miss this. There's a very practical theology to this. In our passage in Ephesians, you may notice that Paul tells husbands to love three times. In verse 25, in verse 28, and in verse 33. So you can't miss it, guys. It's once, twice, three times. Paul puts that before you. But this is indeed hard. Just as it is hard for women to submit, it is hard for men to love this way. This kind of love goes beyond what is natural. And so Paul gives us a practical example. He says, husbands should love their wives as they love their own bodies. Now this seems obvious. Because who hates himself? But it's also a reminder of the nature of marriage. The husband who hates his wife hates himself. And the husband who loves his wife loves himself because they are one flesh. They are one family. So what does this mean practically? Three practical points for husbands this morning. First, I think it's a call to be sensitive. I know my own wants. I know my own desires. I know my own needs. But if my wife is flesh of my flesh, and I am to love her as I love myself, then I need to make the effort to understand her wants, her needs, her desires. Secondly, it's a call to be kind. We always want the best for ourselves. And so husbands are called to nourish and cherish their wives. They must let their wives know that they are important, and not just important generically, but that they are important to them. Thirdly, it's a call to communicate. Because all of this that I've been describing depends on communication. How can we know what our wives need spiritually? We have to communicate with them. How can we know that they know they're valued? We have to talk with them. How can we know that they know they're loved? Communication is essential to all of this. And this establishes the family. Marriage is about mo so much more than individual happiness. God established marriage in the garden before the fall. It is his design for the world. The relationship between men and women is purposeful. And the problems of relationships and marriages come not from God's command, but from our sin. And marriage has been designed by God for the perpetuation of the family. I want you to think about this for a moment. What is the most fundamental relationship in the world? Many people would say, well, a mother and a daughter. A father and a son. It's not. It's a husband and a wife. Because there will come a day, I know too soon for some of you, in which your children will leave your family and start their own. 
And when your children get married, when your sons get married, their most important relationship is then to their wife, not to you, their parent. When your daughters get married, their most important relationship is to their husband, not to you as their parent. Now that doesn't mean those relationships are done away with or that they no longer exist, but it means that the family is founded on marriage. And it perpetuates itself by children going out and forming their own families. But marriage is something so much more than a blessing and a benefit. It is an opportunity for us to show the gospel. You see, we live in a world where people don't understand the gospel. They don't think about the gospel. They're not likely to read a Bible. But the marriage relationship parallels the relationship between Christ and the church. So think about how important that is. That's how the world can understand the gospel. The Lord has created an institution that is a picture of the gospel. Now, I don't want you to think that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to become a man and live a perfect life and to die an atoning death on the cross so that we, by faith, could embrace Him and be saved and say to, said to Himself, now, what, how could I describe this? You know, it's kind of like marriage. I guess I'll use that. No, God designed marriage with that greater relationship of Christ to the church in mind. That's what he's done. You see, in our marriages, as Christians, we have great opportunities. We could be selfish and think of ourselves. We could ignore God's command, or we can choose to show others what redemptive love looks like. What marriages are with self-respect, self-sacrifice, and love. Speak volumes others. In conclusion, whenever we think about the practical things of life, we must remember our theology. That we must remember that the Lord is our creator and our redeemer, and he's created us with a purpose and designed the world around us. He has redeemed us through the work of Jesus Christ for a purpose. You are not random. You are not unknown. You are created by God to know Him and to be blessed by Him. And if you have trusted Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed by Him to be free from sin and shame. And marriage is a part of God's design. Last week we saw that the family of God is the model for earthly families. Today we see that marriage is the picture of Christ and the church. We should never give up the concept of marriage. It is indeed under attack in our society today. It may be under attack in your life and in your relationship today. But there's always hope. There's hope because God Himself is the maker and designer of marriage. Let's pray.